The best advice I can give myself as a dad is to let go of expectations or at least know that they need to change. Hi there. Welcome and thank you for listening in. I'm super stoked to have you with me. My name is Philip Hartman and Being Dad is a show for dads. I meet and speak to unique dads, asking them to impart their wisdom and to share their experiences as dads with us. The reason for being dad is my own story. I became a father five times within 13 months. Yes, five times, 13 months. I was seriously underprepared and I struggled to find inspiring content for myself. By meeting and connecting with these men, I'm trying to learn all there is about being a dad. We cover heart-to-heart topics between two dads and our aim is to inspire other fathers. And with this, hopefully we can make a positive impact on families around the world. The next session is potent and inspirational. Daniel DeFabio is married and the father of two boys, Alex and Lucas. Sadly, Lucas quite recently passed away at the age of 11 and a half due to Menke syndrome, a rare disease he'd been diagnosed with at the age of one. When Daniel heard the diagnosis at the time, he adjusted his expectations of what raising a child might look like and at the same time began to tell Lucas's story with a short documentary. That film led to Daniel co-founding Disorder, the Rare Disease Film Festival and later the Disorder Channel, both dedicated to spreading awareness for patient families facing any of the more than 7,000 rare diseases. I'll put the link in the show notes. In the session, Daniel shares his views and experiences as a rare dad, how he dealt with the loss, how Lucas's condition impacted the family and of course what helped him and his views on fathering a child that he knew he would lose. The most powerful takeaways for me as a dad were parenting advice is almost always future orientated. Think about that. Live in the moment, be ready to change your expectations. When dealing with rare disease parents, give an extra effort to include them. Lastly, I do do speaking on help, uh, to help facilitating family success. And so if you'd like to book me for a keynote, please do reach out via dedicated.com or simply use my LinkedIn. I'll put it in the show notes. Thank you so much for your support here. Right. Without any further ado, here is Daniel. Thank you for listening. Please don't forget to subscribe and hit share if you like it. Thank you so much. Ciao. Daniel. Thank you so, so much for coming on. I'm really, really happy to have you on today. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be a part of what you're doing here. Thanks, man. So I'll give a, a brief intro and maybe you can just take it from there and, and give a bit more detail. I know that you're a father of two children, Lucas and Alex, and Alex had Menke's disease and sadly quite recently passed at the age of 11 and a half years, uh, which is beyond the usual life expectations uh, expectations for that um, How do you say illness or condition? So really sorry for your loss. And again, thank you for speaking to us because it is an important topic. And so I'm hoping that we can help raising some awareness around Menkes. I know that it's um, quite rare. It's a disease around how the body um, manages copper, but I'm sure you'll talk more about it. Um, and maybe, yeah, I'd love to hear your story as a dad in that context, but of course, also just as a dad, um, I, we spoke already and I know that your story is a powerful one. I really was very touched the last time, so I hope we can get a similar um, conversation going. 
what was really inspirational for me was to hear your perspective, um, the perspective of a father with a um, special needs child, because I think we often take health and our children's health too much for granted. And also what I really loved, um, there was something you said um, that parenting advice is always future oriented. And, and that is so true. I th you said it now in your best advice again. You said uh, it was our expectations that needed to change. Um, and, and this is so true, right? We, we have these children and then we have these expectations. And of course, they never match, you know. And, and, and so, yeah, living in the presence as a dad. And then you sent me an article. Oh, I found it on your website, Notes from a Dragon Mom, and she was very powerful. She said uh, something, we never thought about how we might parent a child for whom there is no future. And so there's a lot of powerful stuff there, but I, I don't want to lead the conversation too much. Maybe you can, you can just go wherever you want to go and share your story. Sure. I think uh, one of the first things that happened for me when my son, it was Lucas who was, uh, had Menke's disease, and he... Um, you know, of course, it's a shock. It's a shock moment for the whole family to to adjust to this. Um, and then after adjusting to that, one of the first things I realized was how comparison didn't matter or it, or it shouldn't matter or I had to let go of it um, because my kid wasn't going to be, you know, whatever. Again, it gets back to expectations. It wasn't going to be the fastest runner, the best student, the all those superlatives you might hope for your child, I think especially your first child when you don't know what's in store for you. And if you can let go of that or adjust to that, it changes so much. And then what do you, you know, um, like you mentioned, the future focus of, of so much parenting, you know, you're preparing, preparing for high school, preparing for college, preparing for career. You know, you want to set your child up for success later in life. And when later in life isn't going to be maybe that long, in our case, we were told three to 10 years and Lucas lasted with us 11. Um, it's a very different mindset. It's a different approach to your life with your child, but it creates a approach to life in general where very silly things, but you know, we all, at least in the Western world, we tend to get caught up in things that are based in comparison. You know, is, is my job a good job compared to what compared to the neighbor? You know, is my car a good car compared to the neighbor and our kids is my kid, the smart one or the well-behaved one or the kind one. And you want all those things, you know, but when some of it or a lot of it is taken out of your control, it really, for me at least, resets your mind. And then you start to look at other things. And it, it can be as simple as some of those bits of advice that have stood the test of time, like live for today, live in the moment, are you happy? Things like that. And we looked to my son to be our guide and he couldn't communicate. Um, the Menke's disease creates such low muscle tone that You know, he wouldn't really speak. Um, he'd just verbalize with happy noises or unhappy noises. And we'd take those happy noises every time. And if he was laughing and smiling, which was most of the time, you know, lucky for us. And um, we'd go with that. That would, be our, that would be our salvation that kept us going to see him, despite everything else he was up against, to see him happy. Yeah, and that's powerful because we all always say, yeah, live in the moment, but you don't, right? 
you know, you start a call, how are you? Busy. Okay. <laughs> what is that even? That's not, that's not great. You know, that's glorifying the business. And then, yeah, I do the same. I work all the time. I start all these projects and sure. I try to schedule kid time with the kids, but can I do more? Of course I can do more, you know? And so that's, and also more, more for myself, by the way, it's not always just about self-sacrifice. Self-sacrifice in fact is very, um, um, I think it's very self-centered because yeah, now you burn yourself. Now where's the upside for anybody in that, you know, kind of, um, can, can just for, for context for the listeners, I know that Menke's syndrome is a disorder that affects the copper levels in the body. Um, and it's also called kinky hair syndrome. You told me, and I saw this in your video also, which I'll put in the show notes, that it's vital that it's diagnosed right in the beginning. Can you talk a little bit about the disease so we get more information out there about this? Yeah, Menke's disease uh, is a single gene mutation. So the ATP7A gene creates um, a copper transport enzyme for us, for the healthy, typical people. For people with Menke's disease, it's either not creating enough or maybe zero. And without copper in your system, who knew? You don't need very much, but if you have zero, it's a problem. And so your hair, brain, muscle are most affected. They will be underdeveloped. And hair sounds inconsequential, but it comes in handy in diagnostics because it's one of the first, most symptoms aren't visible till age four months. And that can be too late. But the kinky hair, and that's one of the reasons to give the disease a nickname, even though it sounds a little silly. Um, it's actually a little less silly in Latin, which I think is pili torti. Um, that can be a signal to diagnosis in the first few days of life, which you need because unlike a lot of rare diseases, there is actually a fairly successful treatment for Menke's disease, but only when given in the first 10 days of life. Okay. And in our case... Lucas wasn't diagnosed till age one. So we did do that treatment, and the treatment is a, is a type of copper injection. But we think it may have had some effect, but it wasn't, it wasn't the best case uh, efficacy, which we saw some other uh, boys with Menke's disease. It's almost always boys as an X-Link disease. Um, they've had the treatment in time and gone on to walk, talk, graduate high school, you know, almost neurotypical outcomes. You could look at them and see maybe something's a little bit different, but they're not severely um, disadvantaged or differently abled, in, in, like my son being in a wheelchair and, and nonverbal and not able to eat uh, by mouth. So, so I, I didn't know about this disease when I had my children. What do we look out for, for in a newborn It, it's very tricky for a newborn. If there's a family history, two-thirds of cases are inherited, and one-third of cases are a spontaneous mutation or a de novo mutation. My son was in the one-third, so we didn't have a family history. Others have that knowledge going in, and they can test in time, and that's how some of these boys do get treatment in the first 10 days. Um, but for The average family, unless, uh, and we're, we're starting to work on, in the United States, we have newborn screening exams. You know, certain diseases get tested. Everyone who's born gets tested for them, but they can vary state by state. And we're starting to work on, there is one now for Menkes. It's just in the last year or so that it's been effective enough to be added to the screenings. Um, 
And we're starting to add that state by state. It's in about six states and we have 50, so we have ways to go. Um, and then there's movements too that might uh, go towards more of a, a national um, recommended screening. And it'd be great to get on that because as terrible as Minkies is, the one sort of bright spot is if it's caught in time, there's a pretty good treatment. And a lot of people facing different rare diseases don't have that as even a remote possibility right now. Okay. Can you say a little bit on how it went from the beginning? Because that was a powerful story that you shared the last time. Do you want to talk a bit about that? Yeah. Um, the very beginning with Lucas was a um, kind of a, a easy birth uh, for my wife. I think she would agree. Uh, but <laughs> Only um, men can say this. <laughs> exactly. Easy for me. Um, <laughs> yeah. But uh, Good save. <laughs> shortly after his birth, the doctors came back and said he had a skull fracture, which is at the base of the skull. It's called the occipital horn. And that seemed confusing to them and confusing to us. And then we were put into a NICU unit for 10 days while he recovered from that skull fracture. And in hindsight, those 10 days were the period that, you know, we had a neurologist look at him. We had a lot of specialists looking at him, but none of them with rare diseases who could blame you to not know all 7,000 plus rare diseases to look for. So none of them thought to look for this particular disease. And when his brain and there was a skull injury, but no brain injury. So people were relieved. And eventually we got out, we went home and things were a little bit normal, but as new parents, we didn't even know what normal would be. So um, one thing we noticed is he wouldn't sleep unless he was directly on my wife's stomach or my stomach. And we compare notes with our friends. And there's that comparison thing again. Our friends who just had newborns and said, isn't it weird that they don't sleep unless they're on you? And I, no, that's not in our experience. That's not how it's going for us. <laughs> and that could have been a warning sign. But we thought, well, he was a couple born a couple weeks early and he had the head fracture. So maybe that's what this is about. And then at four months, he missed some milestones. And again, we could sort of write that off to maybe it's still recovering from the head fracture. But at nine months, he actually regressed a little bit, whereas he had been able to roll stomach to back and back to stomach. At nine months, he lost that ability. And then it was enough of a warning sign. And some people said, you should go look for a genetic diagnosis. And I know from other people that have seek, sought a... Uh, rare disease diagnosis that it can take years. And in our case, you can't really say you were lucky, but we were lucky that the geneticist we saw was familiar with Menke's disease, knew right away what to look for, touched Lucas's hair, said, we're going to look into copper disorders. And there's only two of them. And the other one, you can be a adult. It's Wilson's disease. And you can, you know, it has its problems, but you can be a functioning, capable adult with that one. So I was certainly rooting for that of the two. And then the diagnosis came back that it was Menke's disease. And, you know, our world changed. You, you, get, this, you get this black and white data yeah. that yeah. says there's not a good prognosis here. Mm -hmm. And it takes a good amount of time to realize the difference between your child will die someday your child will die sh shorter or sooner than you'd expect. But that's not the same as you don't get time. You don't get a life with your child. 
And that's really what we had to uh, adapt to and adjust to and realize the time may be short, but the time can be good. And we need to make sure that that is. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things I found so powerful. I wrote it down. You said the last time you may have a shorter life with your child, but you still have a life with your child and some of this will be happy. And, you know, I, it made me think so much because <laughs> you may have a shorter life with your child as well, listening or me or you, that is not a given, you know? And so that, um, that perspective of acknowledging that fact that we all die um, and sometimes before we would like to or before it's too early, it can just happen, right? So it better make sure that some of it is happy and don't just live in the future. I found this concept so powerful, like parenting advice is always in the future. How ah, we do this so that they can go to that school and so this is this and they need a job and this is 20 years out, man. It's like amazing. Sorry, I totally deviated. And then what no, happened then? I, it's, it's a great point. And even having learned it or having been forced to learn it, you know, it, it's, as we mentioned, it's, it's the type of advice we've all heard all our lives, but yeah. you yeah. need a little extra push to embrace it, I think, or mm -hmm. to be reminded of how uh, applicable it is to you. And, you know, That was that story is sort of the beginning of Lucas's life, and then it sort of comes mm -hmm. back around at the end of his life, which was during the time of a COVID pandemic. And in a way that I hate to say kind of worked in our favor, but if you knew you were going to lose a loved one, what would you wish for? And most people would say to spend more time with them. And because we were in lockdown and all the family is just stuck together in the house, we had our final days with Lucas so much more um, direct contact and, and quality time and family time. You could see it in his face because he wasn't going to school anymore. And he'd just look at us and laugh and notice that the schedule was different. He was getting more of our time than he usually got. And uh, you'd never, you'd never want to pick the, the way something ends because you don't want it to end. But that was probably a good way to go into the end. Yeah. And yeah, I'm so, so sorry for, for that loss, but you've thought about this for a decade. You knew somehow you'd prepared, but of course you cannot prepare for it. And you told me the last time that, that uh, you never give up hope, you know, even when the doctor says it's still quite short, uh, you're looking at months, you'll still ask yourself how many months. That's what you said the last time. I think got goosebumps when you said this what is the situation with um, Alex because he had nine years uh, his whole life with Lucas and then we mentioned the last time I think you said it uh, you know for Alex it was like losing two people uh, because the nurse left also and she'd been there I don't know was she there the whole time but definitely for a long time how was that situation for him Right. So we had home care nursing for Lucas. Typically, she would come at the end of his school day and stay till his bedtime. And that might be five or six days a week that she would do that. So she was a huge part of our life. And it was for eight years. And Alex is a nine-year-old. So yeah. that's all of his life that he could really remember. And he, shortly after Lucas passed away, Alex said, kind of tearfully, it's not just that we lost one family member and went from four to three. We went from five to three. 
And while that was true for my wife and I too, it was much probably more so Alex's experience of the nurse being such a huge part of our family and his life. And yeah, it's, uh, it's been a life change. And now Alex is, um, he's doing pretty well. I think hopefully we all are, but, um, he's now in a different family where he's the only child and he can sometimes feel a little guilty that there are some good aspects to that for him. You know, he gets more of the attention, uh, cause it's not divided and it, and it probably wasn't evenly divided when Lucas was, you know, Lucas's needs always seemed more important and more urgent. And I hope we never neglected Alex, but I'm sure he sometimes felt like it wasn't his moment. It needed to be his brother's moment. Yeah, I can well imagine that. I mean, uh, we have a night nurse and we've had her from, uh, I don't know, two months when the triplets were two months or something like that, one month, because we swapped the, the first night where nurse almost killed the babies because she overdosed them with iron. It was a mistake. Oh. She, no one told her to do it. And she took the syringes and she, she gave iron uh, orally and it was too much. And so we had to rush them. To, it was quite stressful. So anyway, so yeah. we swapped her out, um, obviously. And, but since then we've had the same one and she's like a second mother, of course, to the children. So I can totally relate to what you're saying there you know if she if she was was to go yeah they'd be heartbroken devastated of course and on yeah. your second point of fairness or however you could say that or you know on the other side um i guess alex will have much more time so maybe he didn't have so much in the beginning but now he has much more time now so it's it's going to be fine that's yeah. that's okay Yeah, and I think a lot of uh, rare disease families will tell you how it can be a a force for good in shaping the siblings. The siblings become very sensitive and of compassionate. Yeah. yeah, they understand it. Yeah, it would be interesting to learn how was there kind of a support system with other parents, and how did you your wife deal with the whole situation when? When it came up, and often, and I'm asking particularly in the context of uh, of you as a dad, because what happens often, or what I've heard often, and I've seen it in myself, dads often kind of take on the role of the protector and just shoulder on and don't actually deal with the issue, but try to kind of hold everything together. And how was that with you? So, how did your wife deal with everything? How did you deal with everything? Was there other parents? How did the support system work? Maybe what are the learnings from this? Um, people who might be listening um, because they might have a child with a rare disease or it might be happening or they might know someone with a uh, family with a rare disease child. Yeah. What can we learn? What? How can we help? What's important to know? So I think my um, experience was to quickly reach out for research and in more information. And, and the best thing that happens along that way is if you have a diagnosis, you can find often a community of people that have the same disease. And that can be your best resource for not only information, but emotional support. So in that way, I was very um, outward facing and, and public with our story. And I was, I was putting our story out and trying to pull people into me. And I found great allies and friends and resources that way. And my wife was much more internal. And I know um, often the gender dynamic is the reverse, that the 
the husband is a little bit shut down and the wife is more engaging with others. But at least on this topic of our son's disease, we were not the gender norms. I was the, um, the one seeking as much community as I could find. Cause uh, a lot of people in rare disease will say how isolated they feel. And it's, um, why, it's, why is this? It's socially isolating because, um, you, you won't go to the soccer games or yeah, okay. your wheelchair can't yeah. get into the certain events or your schedule just doesn't permit you to go to the cocktail party and you've been invited three or four times by the same friend and you've had to say no and they give up on you. But really you'd like them to keep asking. You want to be able to say no 10 times and say yes on the 11th time, you know? So, um, I found that answer in a way to the isolation and turning to other rare disease parents and they were a big comfort to me and my wife instead was very focused on Lucas and his care. And she earned a nickname mom Giver after MacGyver <laughs> because she would build contraptions for him. You know, the, um, assisted devices and the specialty medical gear and stuff can cost a fortune. And sometimes insurance will pay and sometimes they won't. But my, my, my wife would take, um, foam core or straps or, all kinds of gizmos and she'd make something do the job. And we joked that she, we never did, but we joked that she should post tutorials. Uh, what, another example was um, to get a, a blanket solution or a wheelchair sleeping bag type thing, keep you warm in a wheelchair, can be like a four or $500 item. And my wife just took a regular $50 sleeping bag and cut it until it worked. And people would stop her on the street and ask about it. And where can we get one of those? So I think she found um, more satisfaction in the direct needs of Lucas. And I, I hope I wasn't in any way neglectful of those. But I also saw Lucas as one example of a community, Menke's boys that needed help. And I put a lot of my attention there. And I want to believe that that was all in his honor and in his service. But there were times when I thought, instead of spending this time making this film or creating this online awareness moment, maybe I should just go down and sit with my kid. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's sometimes spending all this time making podcasts. I'm like, hey, I should be sitting with my wife now. It's 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 eight o'clock, you know. But yeah, so it, this is also important. So to be honest, therefore, I almost don't socialize anymore. <laughs> my evenings are spent with the wife or podcast. That's it. Or work, sometimes work, but I try not to work in the evenings. Um, two things. You, I know we can go two directions. I know you made. Uh, this film festival, Rare Disease Film Festival, which I'll put in the show notes. Maybe you can talk about, uh, I'll put the link there, maybe you can talk about it a little bit, then I have another question. Okay. I um, One of the first things I did to to know if I was alone or to know if my feelings were justified or logical, or I put Lucas's story out there as a as a blog post. And the reaction told me that people wanted to hear that kind of thing. They needed to have that explained to them, maybe. Or in some cases, they just needed to hear, oh, he did it too. 
you know, their, their life is like mine. And in other people, it's that, that story is nothing like my life, but it's still, um, informative. And so having Lucas's story out there that way emboldened me to make a film, which is a short documentary called Mankey's disease, finding help and hope and having the film led to where do you show it? And of course you can put it on the internet and you hope everybody finds it, but not as many as you like ever find it. So then I looked into film festivals and I was at a rare disease conference, global genes and met another rare dad who was going to make a film about his daughter's disease. And Bo Bigelow um, and I started talking about what's the best place to show these films. And maybe it's not exactly a film festival and maybe it's not exactly a medical conference, but could it be something a little bit halfway between the two? And as we looked around and that didn't exist, we thought maybe we should create it. So we did. And in 2017 in Boston, that was Disorder the Rare Disease Film Festival. Nice. Congratulations on that. That's amazing. Thanks. And I know you're continuing it now online because right. of COVID, but I, I hope that you are continuing it for a long time because I think you are doing a great service for that community there. I learned a new word, the rare, rare dads and rare mums, I guess. That's amazing. Um, what I wanted to ask you, and it's exactly on that, rare dads and rare mums, can you relate to a child with a special needs uh, a situation the same way as you can relate with, relate with a child that doesn't have special needs? In other words, can you forget... Can you, can you ever forget in the interaction, in the daily interaction, that he or she has special needs and transcend that, that situation, even if it's just for a moment? How is that feeling? Is that possible? Have you learned something there that you can share that might help others? What's your, what's your take on that? Yeah, I think um, my answer might be no, I can't. I think I'm attuned to it. And... Um, I see the differences and I hope I don't um, see them as negatives necessarily, but I think the differences are worth noticing and worth appreciating and not just ignoring them to say it would be better if I could treat this kid like every other kid, because that doesn't quite work either. And that can be dismissive. And I think a lot of uh, the parents I know of special needs kids On the one level, you want to be treated, your child to be treated just like everyone else, but that's not exactly what you want. You want them to have the same opportunities as everyone else, but they might need different treatment. And uh, I think some people phrase that as a difference between equality and equity. Um, there's little memes and diagrams to show the case examples of that, but um, it might take a bit of consideration for those differences rather than trying to act as though they were not consequential. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's very interesting. I, I, I've, I had um, a number of rare disease dads actually on. Uh, Mark X. Cronin is the one. He was also on the podcast of David Hirsch who connected us. Um, and he's, his son has autism. And then there was another dad, uh, Walter Lee. His son was born with only one functional limb. And both of those dads said... Um, they wouldn't treat their son differently in a daily day-to-day -day interaction. Of course, they, you know, he has one arm only. He can't walk without prosthesis or at all. The one, uh, Zai, the one child, Walter's child. But, you know, so I guess that's a good explanation. Equality versus um, equity. 
or equal how do you say that equality versus equity yeah that's yeah so that's yeah. A, that's a good example i think or a good explanation okay interesting what else can you share with us uh i'll just tell a story that um still hits me emotionally mm-hmm. a lot of people have talked about um moments in their car being their their quiet moments where where thoughts can come to them and the and maybe the the other noises have faded away and and they're alone with their thoughts and before lucas was school age and we didn't even know if he would go to school i would drop him at my mom's for a bit of daycare each day and on my return i would see all the school buses lining up to pick up kids and kids waiting for school buses and it was so troubling to me almost haunting to me because that was an expectation that my kid would get on a school bus and go to school Mm. and there it was as this reminder and it felt almost cruel like my kid doesn't get to do that you guys are all taking that for granted and my kid doesn't get to do that well a couple years later he was ready for school he was in a wheelchair they sent a wheelchair adapted bus and he went to school and so not only was my adjusted my original expectation adjusted, but it was kind of adjusted wrong. And I had to be surprised again when it was a little better than I had imagined. And the nice, nicest moment to come out of his school bus experience, uh, maybe a few months later, when you have a nonverbal kid, you, um, you don't know, do they have friends at school? you know, was it a good day at school or a bad day at school? Now, somebody might write in their notebook as to what they did for the day. And they always say they enjoyed the day. Um, but yeah, exactly. I heard, how do they know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I heard Lucas get on the bus and a boy I couldn't even see on the bus. I never met him said, Lukey's here and he brought popcorn And it just meant the world to me. And Lucas had not brought popcorn. And that didn't matter at all. It's just that there was a kid that was excited to see my kid. And he was a part of his day and part of his expectations. All of a sudden, that worst fear of mine about him not being included in the school system in the day of of a student, uh, I realized I was wrong. That that is, it was part of Lucas's life. And it was one of his favorite parts. He loved school. It's amazing. I mean, it's, it's so easy to say, have no expectations, so you can't be disappointed, right? But that's not possible. Can you share some tricks or methods that you might have applied to have less expectations or to remind yourself of um, that it is your expectations that need change? I think a little bit it was... Um Boy, this will sound terrible, but seeing how little was going to be different for Lucas, um, because we look, we always look for progress. That's, I guess, what expectations are about. And Lucas at age 11 wasn't too different than Lucas at age three. So the next thing, whether it's the next uh, birthday or the next celebration or whatever, those things didn't matter as much to him each day was could had the potential to be as equally good and bad as the previous i think for him and we had to learn that or embrace that um and be a part of that and and not wait for oh on this vacation day it'll be a lot of fun 
you know, well, how about right now? And, you know, there's the organization Make-A-Wish, and we never got around to participating with it, but partly because Lucas couldn't vocalize to say what his wish was, and we didn't want to really impose one on him, but a lot of people would choose Disneyland. And we knew for Lucas that things like that weren't going to make him any happier. The thing that made him the happiest was when the three or four people that he carried cared most about his mom, dad, his brother, his nurse, if they were gathered close around him, he was thrilled. That was, that was the height of happiness for him. And even he, he would sort of develop a sense of expectation on the timetable, right? So maybe five o'clock was when we could all gather with him. And once that happened, if anybody needed to leave the room, he'd follow them with his eyes and he'd be a little angry about it. And he might even like vocalize to show his displeasure because you're, you're taking away from the best part here, you know? So those were um, his, his simpler needs were definitely a guide to us. Um, and maybe how we could have simplified our needs or our approaches. And, you know, it, um, it wasn't so bad. I, I, I talk about isolation, but the COVID isolation in particular wasn't so bad because we were used to devoting ourselves to our nuclear family, you know, to isolating, to insulating, um, to having each other as our support. So that's a great thing. Yeah. I mean, the, the, what I get there is, Two things. Look for the micro moments that just happen day to day, hour to hour, and make sure that there is enough opportunity for those to happen because they don't just happen. You need to gather and you need to let it develop and you need to do it over and over again, for instance, until you realize, wow, this is really what makes him happy in that case. And then you can apply this to your own life every day, of course. And then also, why would we have um, these set events a year out or two years out or three years out or one once a year uh, on the first of january we can all um have new ideas of what we want to improve about ourselves and then 12 months later we do it again <laughs> in december everybody gets stressed because we need to get ready for christmas it's like who invented that you know maybe maybe the year can be three years i stole this from richard malholland he was also on my podcast and it makes so much sense you know if you for instance if you're going to build a company or a project or a podcast Why do you have to do it in six months or a year, you know, just because someone invented the time frame? And so I th that's what the, the two things I get is the micro and then look at much longer, like the big, much bigger picture. And, and I think that's very powerful. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, cool. I think, Daniel, there is, this is pretty much the, the gist of the story. Okay. Um, unless there is something that you do want to share still, because of course we have time, there's no stress. Uh, I don't know if I can think of anything. Okay, well then we've got everything out. Yeah. <laughs> I thank you for sitting with me and for sharing your story because it's, it's an important story and I know that it's not easy, of course, for you, but I know that it will help other people who, who might hear this and who f will find strength in, in, your situation or from from your words and also of course uh, maybe find information that might be vital for them 
because they might be in a, in a similar situation in terms of, of the condition. Yeah. Can you, would you like to share contact details in case someone wants to contact you? Uh, sure. If anyone wants to find me, a great place to do that is at rarediseasefilms.com. And then there's an email form there. And uh, I'm always happy to meet, especially people that are facing rare disease. And sometimes I have advice or sometimes I can connect them to other people that might have advice. So, And we may even know of a film on your disease. If you haven't already discovered it, we can point you to that. So, mm -hmm. yeah, that's what it's all about. All right, Daniel, thank you so, so much. I wish you all the best. And thanks again for sitting with me. This was very yeah, inspirational. Thank you. This is a great thanks. podcast. Thanks. Cool, man. Thanks. Super. Thank you so much for listening in. I really hope you liked this session. If you did, please share this podcast. I'm sure you know someone who wants to hear this. Make no mistake, your shares are meaningful and they drive our success. So thank you for sharing. Thanks for listening in. Hope to catch you next time. Have an awesome day. Ciao.